If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Hey, it's your host, Kamea, and you're listening to Green Dreamer. As a community-powered podcast, we cannot keep our episodes going and alive without more direct support from our listeners. And in this critical time, independent media shining a light on often sidelined perspectives and topics is more important than ever. So if you're learning from us and are moved by our conversations, you can reciprocate a gift of any amount at greendreamer.com support. Oftentimes, scholars refer to it as traditional ecological knowledge, but the reason why I don't like to use that term is because scientists tend to focus more on the traditional while, you know, ignoring that our knowledges have adapted, that they have formulated new facts, and they still refer to us in the past tense because of that term traditional. So I like to use indigenous science more, especially given that I see our knowledges as a type of science especially as someone who has been trained in the Western science. You know, our knowledges are work in that sense, right? Because we adapt our knowledges, we do research, but obviously not through the linear framework that the scientific method calls for. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Jessica Hernandez, a transnational indigenous scholar, scientist, and community advocate based in the Pacific Northwest. She has an interdisciplinary academic background ranging from marine sciences to forestry, and her work is grounded in her indigenous cultures and ways of knowing. She advocates for climate, energy, and environmental justice through her scientific and community work and strongly believes that indigenous sciences can heal our indigenous lands. We begin here as Jessica shares about her background and inspirations for her book, Fresh Banana Leaves. I'm an indigenous woman from the Zapotec Nation that's located in Oaxaca, Mexico, in Maya Chorti, which is our community is separated by three borders, that of El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, but I'm from the El Salvador side. And during the 1980s, the 1970s, there was a war in Central America that devastated our countries. That war is now considered a genocide against indigenous peoples by the United Nations, given that it was targeting indigenous communities the most. And as a result of that war, my father ended up having to forcefully join the movement, especially since we were losing a lot of our men. So they started recruiting our children. 
and he fought in that war for three years before he was displaced and eventually made it to the United States. So I think that as a result of that, I grew up with my indigeneity because my parents are the only ones displaced from their families, their lineages. So every time we will go home, it was actually going back to our ancestral lands. So in that regards, I was always interested, right, in learning more about our environments, obviously from the Western lens or the academic lens, because my relatives, my parents will instill in me those strong relationships that our communities hold with nature, that reciprocal relationships that we are taught to maintain with our animal and plant relatives. So I, I was always interested in learning more about our environments, learning more about the wildlife. So that's why I ended up pursuing environmental sciences as I went into higher academia and eventually receive a doctoral degree in that sense. Mm. And the title, Fresh Banana Leaves? Yeah, so why I decided to name the book Fresh Banana Leaves was just based on the story that centers our displacement. So that story is of my father, who was forcefully required, right, to either join the army or the guerrilla, which was a opposing side of the, the government. And he ended up having to choose that when he was 11. So for, yeah, three years after that, when he was 14, his entire guerrilla encampment was bombarded. It was attacked. And one of the things that he recalls was that, you know, everything that the bombs were coming in sight was being destroyed, right? It was obliterating everything in sight. So he went to seek refuge under a banana tree. And this wasn't any just random banana tree. It was a banana tree that he had played with, the banana tree that he had built a relationship with. Because, I mean, he was still a child, right? So he used this banana tree to climb and kind of escape the reality that he was facing during that time. He will talk to the tree as though he was a friend. So when he went to seek refuge under this tree, he saw a bomb drop on top of the banana tree. But instead of the bomb igniting, he saw how the the leaves of the banana tree actually wrapped the bomb in a way that it prevented it from igniting. So one of the teachings that my father still holds to his heart is that nature protects us as long as we protect nature. In this case, he had protected the banana tree, and as a result, the banana tree kind of protected him. You know, in Western religion, we're taught that our guardian angels are protecting us, but in my family's spirituality, we're taught that, you know, also our animal and plant relatives are protecting us, but obviously we have to hold those reciprocal relationships so that we protect them so that they can protect us in return. So that's why mm -hmm. I, I named or it titled the book Freshman and Elise because it kind of gives symbolism to my father's story. And also those leaves gave him a fresh start and are the main reason why, you know, I'm standing here today alive and being able to tell and write his story as well. Absolutely. I have chills listening to that story and really appreciate you sharing this with us. And obviously very grateful that he was okay so that you are here speaking with us today as well. So this relationship between indigenous science and Western science is one that we have explored on the show before with different indigenous scholars, as well as ecologists and scientists who receive their education from Western research institutions. Though I'm curious to hear you deconstruct the methodologies of each 
and how they might lead to varying ways to understand a particular situation. So specifically, I know you've talked about the linear framework of the scientific method and your invitation to follow more fluid and dynamic approaches. What do you mean by this? And what are some of the limitations you've seen with the more linear methods of inquiry? Yeah, thank you for your question. And I think one of the things that I always say is that in Western science, right, we're taught to formulate our knowledges or our facts through this linear process, as you mentioned, which is the scientific method, where we make up a question, draw a hypothesis, and eventually do a research to collect data and determine whether our hypothesis, which was, you know, our prediction was correct or incorrect. And I think that as a result of Western science being more reductionary, it tends to place things in boxes, right? So if you want to study fish, you will pursue a degree or major in fisheries. If you want to study health, you will go into the public health sector. And I think that that's kind of what I refer to as the puzzle pieces that make up this entire puzzle, right? But for indigenous sciences, Oftentimes, scholars refer to it as traditional ecological knowledge, but the reason why I don't like to use that term is because scientists tend to focus more on the traditional while, you know, ignoring that our knowledges have adapted, that they have formulated new facts, and they still refer to us in the past tense because of that term traditional. So I like to use indigenous science more, especially given that I see our knowledges as a type of science especially as someone who has been trained in the Western science, you know, our knowledges are work in that sense, right? Because we adapt our knowledges, we do research, but obviously not through the linear framework that the scientific method calls for. And I think that one of the examples that I always like to give is that for indigenous science, it's like looking at the entire puzzle completed, right? Where we look at how everything is interconnected, how we cannot remove one puzzle piece. Otherwise, our entire puzzle is not complete. And what I like to parallel to Western science is that it focuses more on the puzzle pieces and not completing the entire puzzle. So in that sense, right, we want to study why fish are declining. We will focus more on like the fish health. We will kind of reduce our focus to something more narrow versus in indigenous science, we look at everything more holistic. We look at the trees, the air, the pollution, the water, other fish species that, you know, are not necessarily that fish species. So it's it tends to be more holistic. It tends to look more at the bigger picture. In that sense, we're looking at the entire puzzle as opposed to looking just at the puzzle pieces. So I think in a way, Western sciences compartmentalizes a lot of the information through those boxes, or in this case, through those puzzle pieces, and indigenous science looks at the entire picture to formulate our information and our questions as well. Yeah, that analogy is really helpful. The analogy of the puzzle pieces and looking at the more holistic picture. And certainly there's value to both, although I think we all have to have the humility to recognize the limitations of every form of knowledge in order to broaden and gain a deeper perspective on the world. And seeing as you straddle these worlds, what roadblocks have you come across when trying to uplift and integrate indigenous science into your Western scientific publications, especially as they relate to this idea of credibility and what is seen as legitimate forms of knowledge within Western science? Yeah, so as an Indigenous scholar who has to publish, especially in the sciences, 
we walk a fine line, right? Like oftentimes we want to share our knowledges, but some of our knowledges are sacred. Some of our knowledges, we have to follow a cultural protocol in order for us to share it. And I think that one of the limitations that I experienced or the roadblocks was that lived experiences are not really welcome in science spaces where we tend to focus more on numerical data but our lived experiences, our firsthand observations, especially as people who still live in their lands, who have formulated knowledge about our environment since time immemorial that has been passed down through generations. Science doesn't validate that knowledge or observations. And I think that also science doesn't respect that some of our knowledge is also sacred, right? That's meant to be kept within our own communities. And that's not to to say that it's a secret that we can only have access to. It's just that our communities are just very careful because time after time we have seen how we have shared our knowledge and it has been co-opted or stolen, especially in the name of sciences, where, you know, scientists have come to our communities. Our communities have shared sacred knowledge and they have published it with our consent without following the cultural protocol. As a result of that, you know, we have to walk a fine line as Indigenous scientists to make sure that we do not share sacred knowledge. But at the same time, when we share our lived experiences, which is different from our sacred knowledge, those lived experiences are invalidated. Those first-hand observations are ignored, right? Because we don't have anything to cite from for our knowledge to somehow be validated. So I think that that's the biggest obstacle I have seen. One, that you know, our lived experiences or first-hand observations are not validated. And two, the scientists feel like they have a right to our sacred knowledge that we share. Obviously, it's going to advance their careers if they publish it. And I mean, we can see that. And a prime example that I like to give in the environmental sciences is the whole field of permaculture, right? Where permaculture was coined by a white cisgender male who worked with an indigenous aborigine community in Australia, where they shared the knowledges of how to look at agriculture from a more holistic lens, as opposed to the Western framework, right, where we do a lot of man labor in order for us to produce these monocultures, right, where we're planting the same crop over and over. And, you know, he decided to take that knowledge and coined it in the Western world as permaculture in that field, you know, it's a really rich field in terms of economic revenue. But when we see whether that field is actually benefiting the indigenous community from where he co-opted that knowledge from, it's not benefiting them, right? You can get certified in permaculture, but it doesn't really go back to the community that shared that knowledge. So I think that those are the two obstacles, um, balancing, not sharing our sacred knowledge, and also our lived experiences and firsthand observations being invalidated. Yeah. And to add to that, something I've personally observed is that as people increasingly become aware of the value and importance in learning indigenous perspectives and ways of knowing and become interested in things like native cultures and indigenous foods, a lot of people want the cultural aspect. They want the knowledge and want the medicines and ecological practices but are more reserved when it comes to engaging with the more challenging politics of indigenous sovereignty. So a lot of people want to take part in the healing and to support the healing, but don't necessarily see that healing as political or see that one's access to healing in their own ways can be extremely contentious and even entail violent consequences. So what do you feel is important to add here when thinking about the relationships between cultures, knowledges, and politics? 
Yeah, that's like an amazing way of framing it, right? Because oftentimes our our indigenous cultures are commodified, right, to be consumed. But indigeneity, healing, everything is political, right? Because we live in these settler colonial frameworks or government structures that continue to oppress indigenous peoples, that continue to build on eco-colonialism, right? The fact that indigenous peoples no longer have a right to steward their lands, where our management and policies are enacted by those who hold power and privilege who are not indigenous peoples. So I think that it's important for people to participate also in the political action. Otherwise, they're not really intending to be a part of that healing, right? Because with that healing, we tend to look at healing as very linear, right? Where, you know, we're going to do this and we're going to get to a better place. But healing is not a linear road. It's a really intricate road where there's going to be ups and downs, where there's going to be good emotions or bad emotions. And I think that it's important for our allies to also partake in the political sphere of that because, you know, that's a part of healing, right? Because colonialism embedded many layers into our communities. And one of those layers is the political government structures, is the politics that prevent indigenous peoples from speaking up when they don't want a pipeline going through their through their sacred sites, when they don't want, want to um, rely on extractive energy resources because it continues to pollute their environments, their sacred water. So I think both of them cannot be separated, especially if we're truly trying to heal our planet and our communities that have suffered from colonization. Yeah. And part of what you talk about in terms of what is necessary on the political front is supporting indigenous sovereignty by way of, for example, supporting the land back movement. I think especially to the vast majority of the general public, which consists of mostly working class families and people just trying to make a better living to feed their families and survive this extractive system who don't even necessarily own a home or land for that matter. People may immediately be aversive to what they presume land back means. And of course, every Native community defines this in a different way. And I want to acknowledge that. But from your perspective, what has this movement meant to you? And what have you learned to be the best ways to initiate these conversations, especially with the broader populace? Yeah, so there's a lot of misinformation or misconceptions of what land back is. And I think that oftentimes people who are not indigenous to the Americas, they think that, you know, it's this massive deportation that's going to take place where only the people who are indigenous to these continents are going to be you know, allowed to remain here. And I think that that's not the case of what the Landback movement is. It's like giving the autonomy to steward and caretake for our lands back to the indigenous peoples. We see that climate change impacts are, you know, kind of jeopardizing indigenous communities the most and first, right? So a lot of our indigenous communities had to adapt to climate change impacts. They had to mitigate those impacts to protect their environments. But yet we see that Western sciences are a little bit behind because most of the sciences that happen were policies are made is in the urban settings, right? And we are not experiencing the same climate change impact in urban settings as indigenous communities are back in their ancestral lands or, you know, reservations. So I think with the Land Back movement, it calls for 
validating indigenous stewardship, validating those indigenous knowledges that protect our environments and moving forward so that we can actually truly mitigate and sometimes adapt, right? Because some climate change impacts cannot be reversed to those changes. And I think that with the land back movement, it's giving autonomy to indigenous communities and kind of moving away from those extractive political regimes or even capitalism that continue to see nature or natural resources as capital or economic value, right? As opposed to relatives that we should build connections and be in relationships with. Yeah, there's certainly deeper worldview shifts that come with it. And what seems to me to be a challenge within settler colonial societies is the superiority complex. And by that, what I mean is that because these societies were essentially built on and realized through domination, it kind of becomes a cultural value for people raised within them to aspire to win, to conquer, to own, and to control, because that is at the foundation of the established order and how a lot of people have been conditioned to define success in life. And so whether we're talking about the validation of other forms of knowledge like indigenous science or whether we're talking about the land back movement, I think there is this deeper value shift that needs to happen because when we have cultures that see eco-social hierarchies as necessary and domination and control as success, then legitimizing other forms of intelligence and knowledge would sort of change the power dynamics and feel like a threat. And the same is true for land stewardship as well. So land ownership is something that is so prized within our society, but I think for different reasons that more so have to do with wealth accumulation in the settler culture as opposed to kinship and the ability to build a deeper relationship with place and to care for the land as an extended self. And so the idea of land back also can feel like a threat rather than an understanding that it is what can support our collective healing. So just what else comes to mind for you as we peel back the layers to the deeper values and perspectives and worldviews that are at the heart of these transformations needed for our planetary healing? Yeah, just connecting it to what you said, right? Even when we look at our educational systems, when we study ecology, when we study life cycles of plants and, and the water cycle, there's still this disconnection of like how it all relates to humans, right? And oftentimes I think that it's important for us to also question why we continue to teach ecology in that sense where we look at a pyramid of species and humans are always the species on, at the top, right? Where it's not a linear relationship where the power hasn't been shared among all species equally, right? And I think that there is like queer ecology, deep ecology are trying to dismantle those notions, right, where humans continue to be at the top, continue to be the top species in the hierarchy of species. And I think that, you know, it starts with also questioning the learning that we did as younger, you know, in the K-12 system and unlearning and having to relearn those concepts, those notions, so that we can better formulate and understand why including indigenous communities is important, why including their indigenous worldviews on how to build those kinships and be in relationship with animals and plants and also our non-living natural resources are important, right? And I think that because we have been conditioned to learn 
ecology to learn biology from this lens that continues to separate humans from nature, we're not going to get there, right? We're not going to understand the manifestation or the importance of the land back movement until we can unlearn ourselves what we have been taught all these years and also relearn so that we can embody a more inclusive environment where certain voices are not the only ones at the table, but other voices that are often ignored or not even invited to the table also get to speak for their communities and also their environments as well. Yeah, there's a lot there. And another thought that came up for me, and I'll do my best to have this make sense, but I'm processing how the dominant culture tends to assign more value and legitimacy to aspects of a society or of knowledge when they are separated and compartmentalized. So it kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier. But for example, there has been in the broader society, a compartmentalization of institutions of knowledge and the formal educational systems of institutions of policymaking and governance coming from something that is outside and on top of the separation between the public and the private, the separation between food production systems and wildland conservation, this disassociation between the representational monetary system of assigned values and the socio-ecological system with their own dynamic currencies of more relational value. So the dominant culture tends to only recognize these parts of society as legitimate when they are separated and professionalized in silos, and not so much when they might be working really intricately together inside of highly complex and integrated kinship and relational systems. I don't know where this urge to constantly reduce and simplify and separate comes from, but this also feels like a part of the deeper crisis because when we give more value to something only after it's gone through a process of simplification and separation, then that's probably what we'll end up doing to ourselves and to our planet. You know, oftentimes the struggles that we face as Indigenous peoples is that one, our lived experiences and firsthand observations are invalidated. And two, is that people feel like they're entitled for us to share our sacred knowledge. But I think that oftentimes our sacred knowledge wouldn't make sense until people unlearn that reality, right, that we continue to compartmentalize things where we reduce things so that they can be consumed, right, as opposed to understanding them holistically. And I think that even going back to how we can build relationships with nature, we have to stop compartmentalizing nature as though it's something, an entity separate from humans, as though it doesn't really play a major role unless we are being impacted by natural disasters. And I think that until we can unlearn and our society can unlearn, it will never be possible for us to even share that sacred knowledge because, you know, there's still going to be a need for people to compartmentalize things, to reduce them and then coin them so that it can be consumed further by the Western societies and cultures. Yeah. And that's kind of like the crisis in form, right? So we can't really be replicating how we're doing things in the same ways that created the problem. So it's not just taking the knowledge, but using it in the same ways and applying them in the same ways, but really shifting how we're doing things and how we're thinking about things and our worldviews and values altogether. Yeah, that's definitely, you know, a great way to put it. And I think oftentimes people question why we keep certain knowledge sacred. But I think like we were mentioning, you were mentioning also is that we're not going to be able to share that until people stop looking at it from something that has to be compartmentalized or reduced 
for it to be further consumed and further exploited, right, in the name of capitalism, in the name of democracy, in the name of education. So I think, yeah, it, it's, it's a great way to put it. Thank you. Yeah. It's kind of like when little kids are growing up, sometimes you just have to withhold some things from them until you feel that they're ready for it, until they've gone through the necessary background learnings and other forms of growing up and transformations that they need before they're ready to hold that knowledge in a responsible manner. And to weave in our earlier conversation to better understand the climate crisis, one of the key differences you've noted between Western and Indigenous science is how Western science tends to look for a lot of quantifiable measurements to track, whereas Indigenous science may be more qualitative in a lot of ways. Another difference is that the first holds this dispassionate observer as objective and separate from what's being studied, whereas Indigenous inquiries often hold a more relational lens and seeing the observer as a part of the matrix itself. So with all of this in mind, as you've tried to understand climate change from different angles beyond just the quantifiable measures like carbon emissions, what have you learned by using a more qualitative, relational, and even historical lens to look at the same crisis that maybe you feel like has been missing from the major and dominant climate narratives? Yeah, thank you for your question. I think that, you know, as a climate scientist, as somebody who teaches introduction to climate science, we continue to follow textbooks that continue to separate climate change data from the impacts it has on humans. And I think that when some of the textbooks or some of the scientists have been able to formulate those connections, what they're still missing is how climate change is displacing many people. And I think that a big reason why that continues to be missing is because displacement is criminalized in the United States, right? That's why it's called immigration. And obviously, immigration policies are very strict that climate refugees and people who are being displaced because of those extreme climate change impacts they're facing in their countries, coupled with like political turmoil, coupled with the natural disasters that they're trying to still revive or, you know, revitalize their countries from are criminalized, right? They're prevented from being considered refugees because, you know, one, they're coming from the global south, which tends to be where most of the displacement is taking place. And two, because, you know, immigration is more tied to the political spectrum. And it kind of connects back to the fact that we want to consume indigenous cultures and we want them to heal communities, indigenous communities, but we don't want to get involved in the political spectrum, right, in the politics behind it. And I think that part of that is that displacement, right, that we're facing like, for instance, looking back at my own personal history, like we were displaced because of that genocide, right? That my father was lucky enough to survive. But when we look back, there were a lot of our relatives who didn't survive. Our indigenous communities rapidly decreased, right? Where we had a lot of, you know, thousands of Maya Chorti fluent speakers to the point that we only have like a few, right? Probably less than 10. And I think that oftentimes, one of the things that's missing is that displacement and how that displacement impacts indigeneity, how it fractures part of our identities because we are not back in our ancestral lands. And some of us are not even given the opportunities to return because, you know, our indigenous communities are still persecuted. Our indigenous leaders are murdered, especially if they advocate for environmental justice, for the protection of our mother earth. And that displacement 
because people don't want to realize that they fail to see that, you know, even for now, Latin America is the deadliest place for indigenous leaders, right? Because we are still persecuted, we're still murdered. And Latin America also holds 50% of the world's biodiversity. So if we're not protecting the people who are trying to protect 50% of the world's biodiversity, we're failing to recognize that we might lose that biodiversity because we didn't want to get involved into the politics because we didn't want to see the bigger picture and how climate change and climate science is interconnected to indigenous rights, especially south of the border and even Today in the United States and Canada, we see how indigenous communities who advocate against the destruction of their environments, they're still met with violence, right? And that violence is documented and is still not punished, right, by the people who enact those violent treatments, especially against our elders, especially against our indigenous women, our indigenous children. And I think that the biggest piece that I say is that's missing from climate change is that displacement and what what are the driving factors behind that displacement, right? Which is that persecution, which is that violence, which is the government structures that allow people to be violent towards our indigenous leader, which is that capitalism, which is that greed and everything that drives to that displacement. So that's one of the things that I see missing from our climate change discourse. Yeah, and that certainly emphasizes how important it is to hold a more holistic lens when trying to understand any sort of crisis, because climate change isn't just about the ecological aspects without humans. And that also comes from a perspective of separation that people are separate from the quote-unquote environment as well. And in terms of healing for our path going forward and reversing this trend of displacement, destruction, separation, and simplification, you bring up this idea of ecological debt. And sometimes it's also referred similarly as climate debt, which calls for climate reparations for those basically who have contributed the most to the crisis to give back the most in terms of helping to resource the solutions and supporting frontline communities to adapt. And as you've said before, when we talk about indigenous rights or human rights in general, Oftentimes, as people who are marginalized, we're told to get over it because that's in the past. But for many indigenous peoples, we cannot just simply get over things because it's something that we endured not that long ago. That intergenerational trauma is passed down to us. So healing is not going to happen in our lifetime in our indigenous communities, but I know that we are planting those seeds, end quote. I think this kind of goes back to the sense of superiority embedded in the culture where a lot of people will say, you know, those who hold greater positions of power and who hold more resources today and who own more land, well, they fought in the past and they won. So other people should just deal with it and move on. And I almost feel like that comes from a place of disassociation from our interdependence that also needs healing in of itself and that we shouldn't prop up as being better off because it's essentially just out of touch with our interdependence. And yeah, if if we are a part of the same extended body of the earth, then the act of healing for any community will have restorative ripple effects far beyond where it's taking place. I would be interested in hearing you elaborate, though, on your vision of addressing ecological debt and how we might reframe our perspectives on it so that it's not viewed as giving in or losing for people who may feel like that's what reparations means for them. 
sometimes one of the things that we tend to forget is that in order for us to heal, we need to know or learn what we're healing from, right? And oftentimes Mm -hmm. it's interesting that we're having these discussions while many school districts and government, you know, state legislatures are passing laws that are preventing the histories from those who have been marginalized to be taught in schools, right? And I think that that's also fracturing and kind of removing us from the healing that we have to collectively do. And I think that it's important for us to learn the histories behind conservation, to learn the histories even behind climate change and climate science, because oftentimes we remove ourselves so much because, you know, those fields tend to be more data-driven that we are forgetting to look at the bigger picture, which is, you know, our collective healing as species, our collective healing as Mother Earth, daughters and children and sons. And I think that um, without knowing our true history and only relying on the history that we have been taught in schools, we're failing our own healing, right? Because how are we supposed to heal if we don't know what kind of role our ancestors play? We don't know how our existence is upholding certain oppressive systems that continue to further marginalize Indigenous peoples, that continue to segregate against Black people. And I think that it's important for us to learn that history, but it's an interesting time and space that we're in now because we have pushed for that call to learn other histories aside from the dominant, right? That, you know, allows people to be like, well, you know, our ancestors fought and they won, so get over it. It's our land. Because, you know, we're seeing that in schools. People are not, especially parents, they don't feel comfortable having to unravel those histories that because there's that guilt that comes with them, right? And I think that part of healing is allowing us to feel all those emotions and making space for them. And I think that part of the healing is not trying to stop something because it's making us feel guilty, right? And I think that it's an interesting time and space that we're in because, you know, we're seeing how there was this push by Black and Indigenous communities to unravel those histories that have been marginalized and ignored from textbooks. But yet, because, you know, we had it, we built that momentum, a lot of parents and people who hold power and privilege are kind of scared, right? They're frightened to let their children learn those histories because they feel like they're losing control, right? They're losing that power. And I think that that's a scary thing for them. But I think that, you know, it's a part of our healing. In order for us to move forward, we have to learn our true histories, the histories that have been ignored, the histories that are not the dominance or that have been normalized in our educational system. Yeah. And it's so true that it's important to allow ourselves to hold safe space to feel all of our emotions because they all, there's a role for these emotions. So whether it's guilt or shame, it's important to feel that because they might guide us towards the acts of healing that we really need. They might inspire us to make amends for what has been severed or harmed in the past. And the last thing I wanted to bring up with you is that I'm aware For you at a personal level, you've been really involved in doing mutual aid in support of your community as part of how you're supporting the work of collective healing. And as people are increasingly interested in learning what actions we can take and what we can do, I'm curious what that type of community building has looked like for you in practice and what recommendations or any other calls to action you have for our listeners based on our conversation today. 
part of the gift of my parents being the only ones displaced from their lineage and their families is that I get to go back home and build those relationships. And I think it's like a double-edged sword because, you know, sometimes we do feel alone. We feel lonely because, you know, we don't have family members who we can drive an hour and visit because they are not here. And those settler borders, especially to even cross those settler borders, it's, it's a big deal, right? It's like really impossible, especially from coming from down south. And I think that the mutual aids is just kind of grounded on indigenous principles where we collectively work to help one another, right? Where we even see that in our agricultural practices where we have like 10 rows of 20 corn each row. We don't take as many as we can. We only take what we need, right? So if you're a family of three, you will take three corn. If you're a family of 10, you take 10 corn. But that family of three doesn't question why that family of 10 ended up getting more corn, right? Because it's it's like you take what you need. And I think mutual aid is a part of that, right? You, you give what you can, when somebody needs it, right, in terms of hoping that, you know, you're planting those seeds that when you end up needing, people are also going to help you. And I think that through those mutual aids, there's that collective healing, especially as we are seeing how Indigenous communities are impacted by climate change. One of the mutual aids was to support the Mistec community of San Pablo de Altepec, who had lost their communal harvest because of the hurricanes, right? During the hurricane season, they destroyed their meat bus, their, you know, communal garden and and their food source, right? So I think that that kind of allows them to heal because many people, when we face those impacts, it leads to our displacement, right? And I think that many of our people who have been displaced, they wish they hadn't been displaced, right? I don't think nobody, none of my parents, you know, are happy they're here, right? Is They didn't have a choice. And I think that part of that is that they want to support their community members. So if they don't have to leave their lands, they don't have to. And I think that that's a part of why even in the diaspora, we help a lot of our community members back home, right? Because nobody wants to be displaced from their lands. And if we can help here, even with like, as simple as $5, make a difference in their lives. You know, our community members in the diaspora and also our allies are willing to support that. And I think that that's part of the healing, right? Where we're in a way also healing ourselves because we have the longing to return back to our lands and we're healing from that displacement and that that longing to not feel alone, to have more community members, to have families close by. And I think that's a part of our collective healing as well. I've been fighting in my sleep and I've been fighting to be free And I won't give up the fight Running towards the light And there's a debt to be paid There's a reckoning that cannot be hold me too while we rip out the structures that silenced you we want justice and peace we want freedom and equality we have all become slaves and the system has failed and the empire was built on the shame and the guilt 
What has been the most impactful book that you've read or a publication you follow? I think Decolonizing is Not a Metaphor by Eve Tuck and Wayne. What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice you engage with to stay grounded? Meditation, especially when I'm having a rough day or when I'm tired. And what is your biggest source of inspiration right now? I think just the love that Freshman Annalise has received from people, um, also non-Indigenous peoples, allies, and community members. Well, we are coming to a close, but Green Dreamer, we have been talking about Jessica's book, Fresh Banana Leaves, and you can learn more about that and stay updated by going to jessicabhernandez.com. And Jessica, deep gratitude to you for sharing your wealth of knowledge and learnings here with us. Thank you so much. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Yeah, Paduchi, thank you for having me here today. And I think that it's important for us to continue planting seeds because those seeds will one day blossom into flowers of change. So thank you. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To help us keep this show alive and reciprocate support for our work, you can head to greendreamer.com support. We also dearly appreciate the five-star reviews and whenever you get to share your favorite episodes with friends. We also want to thank our partnership with Kaliapea Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is Power to Change by Luna Beck. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gan. Our transcripts are edited by Janice Cantieri, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care and I'll catch you soon in the next episode.